Hello and welcome to another episode of Take 15. I'm Lauren Foster, Content Director at CFA Institute, and joining me today is Arun Sundarajan. He's a professor at NYU's Stern School of Business and author of the award-winning book, The Sharing Economy. Welcome, Arun. Great to be here, Lauren. Thanks so much for being here to talk about platforms and digital trust. Now, not every technology platform is a platform company. So let's start there. What makes a company a platform business? Well, I think there are two characteristics I look for. One is that the technology platform is a core part of the business. Um, in many cases, it's the entirety of the business. I mean, Google's platforms are essentially its business. And the second characteristic I look for is that what's labeled a platform is actually a real platform, meaning that think about a platform in real life. It's something that other people can stand on. It elevates them. It sort of enables them to see things that they otherwise wouldn't be able to see. And so a real platform business is connecting to hundreds of thousands or millions or maybe even you know hundreds of other businesses and somehow sort of empowering them to do things, to reach people, to create products that they otherwise wouldn't be able to. So give us some examples, not just here in the US, but globally, what would be some of the best examples of these kinds of businesses? Well, um, you know, the obvious examples in the US are Facebook and Google. Um, another example from the US, which is like, you know, a good example of an enabling platform is Airbnb. Um, it gives global reach to you know, millions of people who are essentially running tiny hospitality businesses out of their spare bedroom or out of their apartment. Um, another good example is Upwork. Um, it's a platform that allows someone who is a freelance accountant or a computer programmer or a copy editor to dramatically expand their business and improve the quality of what they do through the tools that Upwork has. And so, you know, in China, you have a, a fascinating platform in China that I followed very closely over the last three years is a platform called VIP Kid. Um, it is a platform that connects um, primary school children in China, I mean, their parents actually, um, who want to learn spoken English um, with uh, primary school teachers largely in the United States. So, so you say that actually, I had a babysitter who I think was doing exactly that. I know, and it's, it's really interesting. It's, it's, it's a fascinating story at yeah. this moment in time because yeah. here is a platform that is creating the equivalent of tens of thousands of jobs in the United States um, for um, primary school teachers who are not the highest paid yes. um, in non-urban areas largely. And so it's an interesting sort of reverse story of what's going on between the U.S. and China It's really right fascinating now. because yeah. she's also doing it in her summer holidays. So it was a great way to earn some money and keep yeah. her skills up. That's really interesting. So I've heard you say that platforms are not like democracies. They're more like benevolent dictatorships. What do you mean by that? So the first step in answering that question is to recognize the parallel between platforms and governments. Um, platforms are not just extremely large and valuable corporations. Society is giving them government-like powers, um, even though we haven't thought carefully about this kind of ceding of responsibility to them. 
I mean, you know, some of these powers include, you know, control over how intellectual property is divided between a creator and a purchaser. It's not copyright anymore, it's like, you know, a Kindle license. They have incredible surveillance capability, which historically was only given to the entity you call the government. Um, they are our de facto censors through their algorithms on Facebook and YouTube. Um, Facebook now has a currency, Libra, again, something that only a government used to do. And so, um, you know, they perhaps have military-like power, not in sort of standing armies or air forces, but in the fact that they have the technological capabilities that governments around the world need to sort of keep their um, defenses up. And so, as we create players that are as powerful of this, it, powerful as this sort of, you know, it changes the geopolitical landscape. But if you look at how platforms are structured, you know, in this new social contract that they are creating with their quote-unquote citizens, you know, the two billion people on Facebook, the billion and a half on Google, um, they don't organize themselves as democracies, they organize themselves as dictatorships. They state that these are the rules. And so I've often called for, you know, democratic reform of such. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's akin in many ways to the call for regulation, but I think Talking about regulating platforms is the wrong framing of the issue. Governments should be thinking about this less as we are going to tell you what to do and more the way that they might sort of negotiate a treaty with a country that they like but whose form of government perhaps needs some work. Interesting. So you spend a lot of time thinking about uh, platform governance. Yes. So what does sound <clears throat> platform governance look like and what governance choices can make or break a platform? Well. Um, you know, much like a traditional sort of like, you know, publicly traded company thinks about corporate governance and pays very careful attention to it, any company that runs a platform within their corporate walls has to make some choices that ensures that the platform functions sort of in the best interest of its participants and doesn't get the owner of the platform into trouble. So in many ways, this overlaps with um, responsible societal choices that a government-like platform has to make, but also smart corporate choices that, say, a steel company that has started a platform to match up um, you know, steel manufacturers with buyers, or a, um, like, you know, a financial services platform, like you know, a group of companies have come together, they've started a new digital payments platform. And so <clears throat> the way you, I think about these governance choices are that they're really sort of thinking about the design of the platform and what happens when something goes wrong. Um, how do you ensure that it's not just profit maximization that is the goal of the platform, but the interests of the different stakeholders within the ecosystem are well balanced? Again, in many ways, the way you'd think about ensuring that the design of a government um, fulfilled multiple objectives at once. And so some of these choices um, like, you know, that might make or break a platform include, for example, having good due process. So if you're making money advertising on YouTube and putting videos up there, or you're um, driving for Uber and depending on them for your livelihood, and an algorithm on the platform suddenly disconnects you, or deletes your video because you know it's detected that perhaps you're not doing what you're supposed to do. 
um, there has to be a process by which you can seek recourse. You know, like, you know, where you have a form of hearing, you have a way in which, because if you worked for a company and this happened, you'd go to your manager, but if you're running your business through your platform, so that's one example of a process that can, you know, a dimension of governance that can make or break a platform. Another dimension is ensuring um, a minimum amount or absence of bias, or in other words, ensuring algorithmic fairness, because every platform delegates a whole host of decisions to um, its algorithms. These algorithms are trained on data that may contain bias, um, might be sort of programmed in a way that facilitates sort of inadvertent inequality or imbalance on the platform. And so this is another critical governance choice. Let's talk a little bit more about algorithmic fairness. Um, what are the key risks and what industry do you think is most vulnerable? Well, there are a number of risks. I think uh, one risk is, of course, reputational. Um, if you're a, not just a platform business, but any company, let's say you are issuing mortgages and um, you know it isn't human beings sitting and pouring through every application anymore. Every mortgage issuer has some algorithms behind the scenes that are making decisions. Or if you're issuing credit cards, or if you're like you know deciding on an insurance premium, um, you know there's it's really important to ensure that um, the outcomes that the algorithm is generating. Um, do not reflect either um, intentional or unintentional, or do not confer sort of unintentional or intentional disadvantage on one group over the other. And, you know, you might say, well, of course, you know, it shouldn't, and any smart business would be sort of on top of this. But what a lot of people don't realize is that the algorithms that are actually making these decisions today, whether it's um, censorship decisions on Facebook or like, you know, sort of uh, credit granting decisions for a bank or um, sentencing decisions in many sort of courtrooms around the country, they aren't programmed explicitly by some smart computer scientist who is giving them rules. They're given gobs of data and they learn from the data. So they like look at a bunch of past outcomes and they come up with their own rules and the humans don't really understand what these rules are. And so if you train an algorithm on 50 years of data and in that data is sort of biased decision making that has happened in the past, the algorithm may pick up on it. Um, if you train it on a set of, like you know, a sample of data that somehow is biased because that's the sample you've collected. Um, it could sort of perform well on sort of the people represented in that sample and not on others. And a great example of this are facial recognition algorithms, which um, for many years, I mean, it's changed now, but until last year were changed, were, were trained largely on this data set that people had contributed their faces to. And a vast majority of people who had contributed their faces to this were computer programmers who are predominantly male and Caucasian. And so it, the algorithms across the board were performing really well on sort of facial recognition for Caucasian males, but were not performing well on the others. And it had nothing to do with the intent of the person who built the algorithm. It had to do with a bias in the data set. So I found that um, across many industries, um, executives and corporate boards are only now starting to get a sense 
for what these hidden risk drivers are. And at this point in time, I think industries across the board are vulnerable, but I think financial services is the most vulnerable, um, in part because it embraced digital technologies the earliest. Um, and so it has systems that were built in the 70s and 80s and that like, you know, have very little transparency in them. It's got the most data. And so this is an industry that really has to keep an eye on ensuring that their algorithms are fair. A final question just to wrap up. I'd love to hear a bit more about uh, trust, especially digital trust. I've heard you sometimes talk about the 2018 Edelman Trust Survey, which showed a, a plunge in, in trust in the US. Is there a crisis of trust in society today? Um, I don't see it so much as a crisis, but more as a transition. And I think through history, there are different institutions that we've relied on for commercial and social trust, you know, community, government regulations and rules, um, economic institutions like courts, like, you know, contracts, property rights. Um, corporate brand has been a very important sort of driver of trust recently. And we're in a transition into a fifth phase where um, digital communities or information that is embedded in platforms or trust, digital trust systems are starting to gain more prominence. Um, and so as we go through this transition, um, I've seen sort of trust levels in society continually fall, but people's confidence in their ability to transact based on digital trust systems continues to grow. And so it's not really that there is a crisis of trust in society. It's just that we're starting to rely more on the new trust systems. And so when we're asked about the old trust systems, perhaps like our level of faith in them is lower than it used to be. We'll have to leave it there. It's been a fascinating discussion, Arun. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Always fun. Um, and thank you to everyone for watching. Or if you're accessing this content as a podcast, thanks for listening. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes. And if you like the podcast, leave a review or a rating. It helps others find the show. Thank you. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider rating and reviewing us on iTunes or wherever you're listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts and it helps others find the show. Also, a quick reminder, this podcast isn't intended to provide expert advice on the topics we covered. If you need tax, accounting or legal advice, please consult a professional. I'm Lauren Foster. Thanks so much for listening.